Uh, Father, thank you for the book of Romans and the way it continues to speak to us. And you've used it in so many generations uh, to strengthen and encourage your people and to give us uh, a way of, uh, to give us a way of understanding how we relate to you so that we may serve you well. Uh, let that be the result for us as we study, as we grow in our understanding and, under, and, and come to grips with what you've really done for us and how we relate to you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I'm, I'm going to take a, a, an act of faith here and assume that we finished chapter 3 last time. So... <laughs> Uh, the, let me just read through verses 27 to 31. Where then is boasting? I think we did deal with this. It's excluded. On what kind of principle? Of law? Of works, rather? No, but on the principle of faith. For we consider that one is justified by faith without works of law. Um, or is God the God of the Jews only? And I think we said this last week. If uh, let me let me preface this with a question: <clears throat> Who was the law given to? Jews. Um, uh, rabbis teach that you can't keep the law outside the, the land of Canaan. Now, whether that's true or not is another question. But but. The rabbis say that you can't keep the law outside the land of Canaan. Any Israelite living outside of Canaan is by definition an idolater. Is the reverse implied that they can keep it in Canaan? Yeah, that, 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 would, that would have to be in, in Canaan, Canaan to keep it. Okay. They could still be idolaters in Canaan. But, but by definition, even if you're keeping the law outside the land, you're an idolater. See, so, so if the only means of righteousness was by the works of the law, then he would be the God only of the Jews. If he's not only the God of the Jews, but also the Gentiles, then, um, verse 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith um, and the uncircumcision by faith, do we annul the law by faith? On the contrary, we establish the law. Now he's going to take a good part of the next chapters four to eight to establish this concept that um, we establish the law by faith. Uh, so what what seems obvious to us is if we're, if we're not teaching rules, then people may break the rules. Amen. Yeah. That's right. <sighs> got to control that so we teach the rules what Paul is saying is no you don't teach the rules you teach faith and when you keep when you live by faith you fulfill the righteousness that the law requires um, we're desperately afraid of that uh, you know the old definition of the pilgrims I'm sorry of the Puritans they were people who lived in absolute terror that someone, somewhere, was having fun. <laughs> uh, it's it, the idea for many in Christian leadership, if I don't teach them the rules, they're going to be out there breaking it all the time. And I, gotta, I, I have to protect my people from sin, so I preach the rules. 
so that they'll keep the rules. Uh, so, um, now, there, there's a guy down in Florida. He's, he's, I don't know how old he is, but he's substantially older than I am. And he's still going. I can't believe it. He's still wow. doing broadcasting. I know. It's just, <laughs> just how can anybody be older than I am? So uh, I, I won't ask any questions in this group, all right? No, no questions will be asked or answered. Uh, Jill is the child in the bunch. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, he, he, he said, um, what did he say? Steve Brown is his name. Um, keeping the rules, living by faith. I can't remember what he was said. It, it was going to be good. Yeah. And I wish I had say, said it to you. But, You're getting too old. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so, but, 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 um, oh, oh, I remember. He taught preaching at Reformed Theological Seminary. One of my f- friends, Noy Sparks, actually had a preaching course with uh, Steve Brown down there at Reformed. And he would say to the uh, to the young men after their sermons, periodically he would say, "That was a great sermon," and it would it would be a great sermon in any synagogue in town. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't anything so peculiarly Christian about it that it would be offensive in a synagogue. Mm-hmm. You're teaching obedience, teaching rules. Are you with me here? So evidently, if my sermon will fit very well in a synagogue, it's probably not a Christian sermon. Does that make sense? So what does a Christian sermon look like? Well, Paul is going to be unfolding this to us. And with chapter 4, he's going to move us on into the next stage of his discussion. Let me review the structure of the book as we're working on it. Chapters 1 to 8 are addressing the question, or the... the, the um, affirmation that Paul made in chapter 1, the just shall live by faith. First question he has to address is, what is righteousness and how do you get it? Um, Are are you with me here? And chapters 1 to 4, more or less, 1 to 4, are addressing the question that righteousness is by faith. We've we've addressed that first in chapters 1 and 2 by showing the sinfulness of the human race. Um... I'm blocking people out with my computer screen here, but I got to be able to see it. Um, so, so the sinfulness of the race, which is astonishing, because he moves from the whole human race in chapter one to the self-righteous in chapter two, one to fourteen or thereabout, and then to the Jew at the end of chapter two, and by the cha- by the end of chapter three. Um, uh, or, or, or by he, by the time he gets into chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, there is none righteous, no, not one. So he's drawing the conclusion that Scripture has given to us centuries before. Uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks God. Question? Well, that leads to our discussion yeah. before we opened up that the sinful nature, isn't that where they get that well, from? Yeah, that's that's where that's where the concept has come from, but the scripture never talks about a sin nature, not once. What about Ephesians two three, where it says you were by nature children, children of, wrath. of wrath? But that doesn't mean you're a, uh, you're, you have a sin nature. That is, how do, how do you get to be a? Oh, let's see, where is that? Um, 
Galatians chapter 2, Paul says to Peter, we who are Jews by nature, how do you get to be a Jew by nature? You're born that way. So how do you get to be a child of wrath by nature? You're born that way. It's not that you have a sin nature. It's that human nature has within it uh, a penchant to have no regard for God, to, to treat God as irrelevant. Uh, the, the, did, did we look at Psalms in this regard? Psalm, I think it's Psalm 14. Look at Psalm 14. Um, I think that's the right Psalm. I need someone that I can download my actual memory, my, my into, who will stand beside me and I'll say, now, where was that in that, in the Bible? Uh, yes. Let me see what I'm looking for and see if it's in 14. Um, That's not what I'm looking for. What is the psalm? Um, I don't think it's seven. No, it's not. Where is that? Um, now I can't even get the context in my mind. Um, There's, there, there's a no. There's a there's a verse eleven. Psalm ten. That's what it is. Psalm ten. Um, it's not completely gone. It just takes me a few minutes to get there. Psalm ten. No, it's not Psalm ten either. Gracious, what is it? Um, Psalm 10. Yeah. Uh, um. But there's but but the psalm I'm looking for has a verse eleven in it. <laughs> this doesn't. <laughs> now, if you look through all the psalms with verse eleven in it, <laughs> maybe I can find it. Uh, psalm ten? No, that's not it. Um, uh, all his all his thoughts are there is no God. The, uh, oh no, Ver, verse eleven says. Go ahead. I was just going to read 14.1. It says, The fool, it says in his heart, yeah. there is no God. No, that's, that's the same idea, but it's not what I'm looking for. In verse 11 of that psalm, whatever it is, uh, um, the, song, the, the fool says, God will never see. He will not pay attention. He tri- the, the, the wickedness of sin is, and, and this is the wickedness with which we are born, um, this this is not sin nature, it's human nature with which we're born is a nature that treats God as irrelevant. It's not that we're simply that we're um, actively belligerent against God. We just, we just don't think that God's relevant. Uh, that's the most sinful thing that you can think because if God is keeping the blood going through your veins and keeping you breathing, <laughs> then... 
how can you treat the one who is keeping you alive as irrelevant? Um, Pastor Matt was talking about this on Sunday, right? Was he? I couldn't. I can't remember. I, he was, he was I don't remember what I did on Monday. How can I remember what what was going on on Sunday? Forgivable sin, I think. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I think so. But the, I, the, the, so the issue, folks, is not that I have a sin nature and a human nature. My human nature is sinful. Now, Jim, mm-hmm. you said it's, that it's human nature. Should that be the term? Because we were human before in the garden before we fell. Yes. Isn't this yeah. But that's that's the effect yeah, from Adam. That's that's the effect that comes to us from Adam. Thus, Paul can say in First Corinthians fifteen, "In Adam all die; in Christ all shall be made alive." But we haven't we haven't changed away from being humans. Our human nature has been changed. It's not that I had a sin nature and I no longer have one. But most people who talk about a sin nature say, "As a child of God, I still have a sin nature." Yes. And I have a new nature. The scripture simply does not teach this. I spent an eight-hour day painting houses one day with a classmate of mine who was a theology major. And it was Doug Kennard, if you remember the Kennards. Doug was a fabulous thinker, horrible communicator. (laughs) He'd answer a question, and I'd, I'd say, no, wait a minute, I don't understand your answer. What about this? And he'd, he'd answer again, I'd, well, what about this? And I ask him, I, I understand there's a conversation going on about on campus about whether we have a sin nature and a new nature or whether we just have human nature. I said, what, what's the issue here? And he started answering, and I didn't understand it. Five o'clock in the afternoon, it's time to put up, clean up the brushes and go home. Five o'clock in the afternoon, I said, so it turns out the outcome of the discussion is the same. It's just the terminology that's different. He said, that's right. So why is this such an issue? He said, I want my terminology to be biblical. (laughs) Folks, when we use biblical terms with non-biblical meanings, we inherently corrupt our reading of the biblical text. Yes? Almost in some ways, if I say I have a sin nature, yeah, in some ways it removes it from me. Yeah, like it's I, I can't help it. Imposed on me. Yeah. But if it say I am sin nature, that is a more personal yeah. depravity That's right. kind of yeah. concept. Yeah. Um, someone was telling me about this, uh, an event in which, um, well, in fact, we were at a basketball game for the college back in the days that we were here, and one of the men on the faculty had a son on the on the team, and, and uh, he did two things that, that I remember. One was, we I forget what it was, we got a, um, a technical foul. He said, we got a technical foul, goaltending. What a great deal. This is great. We've never gotten a technical foul before. He was so proud. But the, another time, his son was called for a, an infraction. He got up and really chewed out the, the prof, or the, uh, the ref. Uh, and when he sat down, I was sitting next to him, and he sat down and he said, that was the flesh. No, that was you. That wasn't the flesh, that was you. And flesh, brothers and sisters, is not my propensity to be wicked. In Romans 6, we will see this. 
flesh is my desire to be righteous by my works. It's exactly the opposite of what we've said. And is, is, is that too in Corinthians where it says I couldn't help you as spiritual, but as carnal? You, yeah, it's fleshly. It's people who are. Uh, it, the, the word carnal there in First Corinthians three is a little bit early. Uh, fleshly would be they're, they're people who are just not grown up. He uh, turn to First Corinthians three. This is coming out of a context in which um, uh, he says, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot know them. Cannot know them? Where are we? 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Yeah. Um, He cannot know them. Does that mean if I tell him, he can't know it? And and he, he just hears blah, 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 like... Charlie Brown in the in the old movies, uh, or can't understand them for they're spiritually discerned, right? Chapter three, verse one. And I, brothers, could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as to and you have what in your text? Carnal. That's too. That's far too strong. People of the flesh is better. He he defines that term in the next phrase as to babies in Christ. The word that's translated baby is exactly, etymologically, exactly the same as the word infant in English. Infant comes from Latin. Both words, napios in Greek, infants in Latin, both mean a child young enough that it cannot speak. Okay? So he couldn't, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual. So the opposite of spiritual is babyhood. Do you follow this? It's not wickedness. It's babyhood. Are you with me? Yeah. Right? It's a new, kind of new thing it is. for me. Yeah. yeah, but Paul said it 2,000 years ago. How come we haven't paid attention? I'm not after you. I'm after the preachers and teachers who've taught us all these things. Then it goes on. I fed you with milk. Why? Your baby. Your baby. And that's what a baby needs. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not able to, to handle it. That's okay. When a baby's a baby, it's okay to be a baby, and it's a healthy and good and right thing to be. Problem is when the baby doesn't grow. Um, but you are still not able, for you are, now is the word carnal a little better, it's not very good. Um, uh, in, in verse 1, the word that was fleshly is what you're made out of here is what it's what what you what you're determined by uh, so they're still not able what does that mean if, if you if you contrast the term baby and spiritual and baby drinks milk and can't eat solid food and you're still not able able to eat solid food what does that imply you're not growing well there's something pathological about a child who does not grow. Yes? Mm -hmm. So there's something wrong. It's not necessarily that the child is wicked, but that the child is is stunted in growth. a, A pastor that I knew 50 years ago, that hurts, um, 
told me he went to a college in West Texas someplace and stayed with an elderly couple. To him, they were elderly. They were in their 50s. (laughs) Uh, He was a college student, so he gets away with it. But um, he said, very when I when I was visiting in the home before I moved in, I heard a baby crying upstairs. And he said, "Oh, you have a baby in the house?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Is that your grandchild?" I said, "No, it's our son." Well, they were in their 50s. And that's passingly strange for a couple in their 50s to have a baby in the home. And, you know, you, you, you kind of fish around to try to figure out, uh, how, how old is the baby? They say he's 20 years old. And I was telling this in a class on Romans here in Memphis, um, back in the old days at, this, at the uh, Union campus. And there was a medical, uh, there, was a, there was a nurse in the class. And she said, I've seen two examples of this where a baby is born and just never grows. You can bet that the parents did everything they could medically to try to solve the problem. Just, there was no solution. Some of God's children locked down. That's what's happened with the Corinthians. They've locked down at a level of maturity past which they should have grown. But they have not. It's pathologically spiritual. And Paul is writing Corinthians in part to solve the problem to call them to get past their, um, their pathology. pathology. And, and the solution, this, this is chapter 3, and I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, so I know that chapter 3 follows chapters 1 and 2 and comes before chapter 4. And what chapters 1 to 4 are about is divisiveness in the church. When there is divisiveness in the church, you're living like babies. My needs have to be met. I don't care about your needs. No baby cares about your needs. No baby cares about your needs. Only thing the baby cares about is its own needs. And so if you're not meeting my needs, then I need to beat you. And, and my favorite professor said, I, I, think, I have always thought it was parabolic that every child is born with his fists clenched. He's ready to do battle with the world. <laughs> uh, now the child cannot be other than fists clenched because of the way the body works at the time but that comes with age but we're all warriors against the world yes we've got to get over that and and put the interest of the other before my own and that's part of what growing up means the Corinthians are stunted in growth they're not wicked and evil as such they're just Stunted, and that's pathological spiritually. And God has sent Paul as the pediatrician who's going to solve this problem for them if they will respond. So this this issue here is um, is is not one of carnal equals sinfulness. Carnal equals immaturity. And there's immaturity you can handle, you can you can live with, and there's immaturity you can't tolerate. So um, that's that's what's going on in First Corinthians. But you know, he follows with behavior, jealousy, strife. Yes. He do other things, behaving, behaving like human in a that's human right. way. Um, but I'd almost been getting the sense from you that maturity was understanding righteousness by faith, not yeah, in some measure. Or, that's right. Yeah. Uh, they're they are living like normal Greeks live. 
it almost appears that he's saying that the way you know somebody who's who is maturing mm-hmm. is uh, yeah. behavior. Yeah, it is. But they but the but their behavior is not so much that it's wicked violations of the commandments of God, it's that they're not revealing the character of God in the community. That's what the community's for. The community is for modeling the character of God to one another and so that we're prepared to model the character of God for others. But God is not divisive. He is quite inclusive. Um, the So, um, you know, you remember this in chapter 1, uh, some of you are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Mm-hmm. Was Paul baptized for you? Did Paul die for you? Uh, where do these divisions come from? They're, they're fleshly. It's not, again, it's not immorality. It's not doing bad things. It's party spirit. Does this make sense? Childish behavior. Childish behavior. Uh, so, so the issue for us is going to have to God, find that verse in Psalms, but it won't come to my mind to save my life here. But we'll press on. Um, so back to Romans uh, one to three, as we've looked at it here, three twenty-seven to thirty-one. He has established the notion that righteousness is not by works. The only possibility of having righteousness is through the work of Jesus and through faith in Jesus. But then the question comes, what is faith? My pastor said, don't use Christian jargon with with people. They don't understand it. For example, don't talk about faith. Explain what it is. And I thought, Pastor, I, I can remember sitting there listening to him. I can remember where I was in the auditorium that that day when he was doing this sermon. I thought to myself, Pastor, I don't know what faith is. Tell me what faith is. And he never did. Um, I don't think he knew. And, and once again, this is not an indictment of the man. He, he didn't have the, the, the um, advantages of, of going through seminary. And the seminary that he did attend for one year was, was a seminary that had a whole two courses in Bible for a Master of Divinity degree and a whole two courses in theology. 90-hour degree. Two whole courses. And one of the, one of the profs that taught theology was in, in the days that I was a student in, in, the, in that period uh, was neo-Orthodox. I, that may not communicate a thing to you, but he believed that the Bible was, is not the Word of God, but it may become the Word of God to you as God uses the Bible to speak to you, but the rest of it's not the Word of God until God speaks to you through it. And he said, he said, Dallas Seminary can have seven courses in theology. We, we can only muster two. Why is that? Uh, the reputation of that seminary was that they, present, pre, they graduated good administrators, but they didn't know their Bible. And that was from one of their graduates that said that. Um, now, Dallas Seminary has great people who know the Bible, just not good administrators. So I'm not sure which is the better <laughs> combination. But the, the issue is that, that my pastor 
didn't have advantages that, that I've had, didn't have the leisure to think about things that, that I've had. And so I'm not faulting him. I'm just saying this is, this is the standard of what gets into pulpits. Do you follow? The, the, so I, I don't fault these people, but I do think that in some way the, the church has to start valuing solid thinking about Scripture. Um, asking, I, I was talking to a, a, a colleague upstairs earlier this morning, and he was talking about the word convict, the way we use the word convict. I was convicted that I should go talk to this person. And then we go to the scriptures and we find uh, God convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So we, oh, well, there it is, that was conviction. Well, but the scriptures never talk about God convicting us of anything. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment because they do not believe in me. Are you, are you with me here? Um, so we are not convicted of anything. That's a, that's a legal term in the court. Let's start. Let's stop using biblical terms that don't actually fit the biblical meaning of the terms, and that's why I'm so troubled by this phrase uh, "sin nature" and "new nature." Scripture simply never even talks about these things, um, and I think we ought to. We ought, we ought to be uh, people whose in whose vocabulary the the, the Bible reigns. So. Going on into chapter 4, we've established then in chapters 1 to 3 that righteousness is uh, is not by works. The only hope that profoundly sinful people can have of righteousness is through the work of Christ. So he's established that. But the question then looms, well, what is faith? Um, And and so that's what chapter 4 is going to be about. It's going to do it in, in three stages. This is 4, 1 to 25, all scripture, and particularly the experience of Abraham, testifies that right relationship with God is by faith. In this section, let me move past some of this. Oh gosh, I've got a lot to move past here. We've, all, we've talked about this already, so... February 16th, that's where I was supposed to be. <laughs> Romans 4. Faith, righteousness is by faith alone. Um, so first, God has provided a way for us to relate to himself without law and through faith. The, you, you see here that 321 to, 4, 321 to uh, the end of chapter 3 is already introducing this idea. But now chapter 4 is going to explain the whole thing. All scripture, and particularly the experience of Abraham, testifies that right relationship with God is by faith. Um, In this chapter, there is a series of contrasts um, to faith apart from works. So faith and works are going to be contrasted. Faith apart from circumcision. Faith apart from the law. Faith apart from sight. We live by faith, not by sight. Are you with me here? Yes, no? I was talking to a former student from Atlanta (laughs) this morning. Um, And we we raised the issue of what what would faith, I'm sorry, righteousness by works 
be? How would we even consider that concept? And it's what I've said to you. Um, uh, whenever you are into, in a legalistic mode, you are, um, you are involved in two things at least. There, there's one more, but I won't go there right now. One is, you have defined obedience in terms that is, that is perceptible by the senses. So I can see that you did this. I can see that you are righteous. The Pharisees could not see the righteousness of Jesus. They thought he was a lawbreaker. So evidently, divine righteousness is not perceptible by the senses of the natural man. Does that make sense to you? Secondly, uh, uh, it's measurable. So, I, I'm sorry to use this again. I've used it too many times, but here it comes again. If you love the pastor, you come on Sunday morning. If you love the church, you come on Sunday night. If you love the Lord, you come on Wednesday night. So now the standard for righteousness is come to church three times a week, and you can be a deacon, you can be an elder, might even be a pastor. Because it's measurable. So um, these are these are fundamental to legalism. I pondered this several years ago. It's been 30 years ago. I was pondering this. I was thinking, well, Paul talks about obedience too, so, so how is the obedience of legalism different from the obedience of faith? And I concluded that uh, Paul talks about the, uh, the chief virtues, 1 Corinthians 13. What are the chief virtues? Now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the chief, the, I can't remember what's the greatest of these is love. How do you measure? How do you see somebody acting in faith? All of us can come up with examples. But looking at the people you go to church with on Sundays, uh, looking down the, the row, can you see their faith? No. Um, can you see their love? Can you see their hope? Not sitting there. Um, but in legalism, you can see these things and measure them. See? So give me 10, 10 pounds of love. I that's a, that's, that's a category error. You, you, love is not measurable by weight or size or there aren't 10 feet of love. You can't cut it in half. Cut, can it, cut it in half or, or double it, you know. So, so the virtues that God is interested in are things that are not precisely measurable. And they're not always perceptible by the senses. If they were always perceptible by the senses, the Pharisees would have followed Jesus. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, so what is this that, that God is calling us to that is right relationship with God? Well, it's faith. And that's why chapter 4 is so critically important. He's going to clarify for us what faith is. So he draws some conclusions in 22 to 25 of the chapter. Uh, uh, chapter 4, then verses 1 to 8. The law and the prophets testify that justification is by faith, not law. So, verse 1. What then shall we say? 
So in fact, let's go to verses 1 and 2 here. Abraham's experience of justification is raised as the great test case to show that justification is always by faith. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, found? According to the flesh. Sin nature? No. He's our forefather, that is, Israel's forefather, according to the flesh. They're, they're descended from Abraham. Uh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Uh, you remember the parable of the uh, Lazarus, as Lazarus, not Lazarus, um, the oy, the Pharisee. I thank you, God, that I am not as other men, or even as this tax uh, tax collector. I tithe uh, everything that I own. I, I, I forget the, the language there. The other man, what was his response? Wouldn't even look up and beat his chest. And said, uh, be, be, merciful. be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, what? One went to his house. Which one? The sinner. That man went to his house justified. Not an act of obedience. He understood what righteousness meant. Uh-huh. He, but there was no act of obedience in that man. But he was justified. Does that, does that make sense to you? There's an act of confession. Yeah, but confession isn't what we normally think it is. Um, oh gosh, are you going to drive me there? Do you need an answer for that? Okay. Confess. Yeah. Yeah. Confess is a word that primarily means to make a public declaration about something in Scripture. Um, We've turned it into a primary prayer word, and it really isn't. Um, So here's Abraham. Then we've got the basic facts about him. Verses 3 to 5. The testimony of the law is that Abraham... The testimony of the law, and I should have had that word law capitalized there, because this is a reference to the testimony of the, of the, of the Torah, the, the books of Moses. The testimony of the law is that Abraham is righteous, is righteous by faith. So verse 5... Um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 3. What de- then does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God... And it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, now we've got three terms here that we've got to we've got to work with. One is uh, this is a, by the way this is a quotation from Genesis fifteen six. So let's talk about it. Um, first is the word faith. We've defined faith before. Do you remember how we defined it? Good. Yeah. Knowledge of what? Algebra? Knowledge of what? Two things, the person and plan of God. I can't trust a person whom I don't know. And I can't trust a person whose plan I know, but it's a bad plan. Yes? So I've got to have knowledge of the person of God. It doesn't have to be extensive. It has to be some. And I have to know something of the plan of God. Again, it doesn't have to be extensive. It has to be some. So we, we've talked about the plan of salvation. And that, that 
is the kind of thing I'm talking about as primary, at, at least uh, chronologically. Um, so knowledge, what's the second element? Ascent. Ascent. What does that mean? Accepting what you know is true. Yeah. So if I hear the plan and I think that's stupid, then I have no faith. I know it, but I don't have any faith. So I, I yes. Yeah. On the second step, and you, you, you shared this with me once before, but I forgot exactly what you said, the difference between uh, assenting to something and consenting to something. Oh, gosh, I don't remember what I said. Uh, con- to consent to something might be completely unwilling. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I consent to that. Uh, yeah, I don't want to do it, but I'll, I'll consent to it. Uh, assent, mean, in this context, means, and I haven't studied the word uh, assent in English at all, but in this context it means you accept the, not only the truth of what you've learned, but its validity for you. It's, 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 it's um, demand placed on your life. The third element? Love. Love. Love relationship is a better word. We enter into a love relationship. Folks, when Paul gives his last argument in Romans for righteousness by faith, he quotes from Deuteronomy. That would not be the book that most people would turn to to support the concept of righteousness by faith. Would you grant that? What is Deuteronomy after all? How, how do we? How have you been taught to to describe Deuteronomy? Yeah, second law. Second law. Second law. What does faith have to do with this? Well, um, Deuteronomy is actually the proper conclusion to the book uh, begun with Genesis. <laughs> Might have known that anyway, but but. Um, these, this five-volume work ends with Deuteronomy, the work that begins with Genesis. Genesis is a book that majors on faith and unbelief. Not so much disobedience, but faith and unbelief. Um, why does God bless Abraham? He believed him. Pardon? He believed, he believed him. So when he lies to Abimelech of Gerar, and, Gar, Gerar and, and God appears to Abimelech and he says, you're a dead man, you have a, another man's wife. And he said, have I not done this in the righteousness of my hands? The man told me she was his sister. God says, I know that you did it in the integrity of your hands, therefore I kept you from sinning against me. That's chapter 20 of Genesis. Chapter 21, Abimelech comes to get to Abraham and he says, God is with you in everything you do. Well, what are the everythings that he does that God is with him in? Lying. Therefore, swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me. Why does he want him to swear that you will not deal falsely with me? Because he has. And God protects him. So righteous, Abraham is righteous by works or by faith? Faith. Deuteronomy is the conclusion to a book that teaches this. Deuteronomy is about loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And in Romans, not, uh, Romans uh, 
gosh. Ten. Um, six through eight. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, this commandment which I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you. What is this commandment? Uh, Fine Roman scholars, men whom I respect, say this commandment is all the commandments of of the Mosaic law. But that's not what is in the context. What's in the context before and after is you've got to have a circumcised heart. But it's very difficult to circumcise your own heart. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God says, or Moses says, Therefore God wills, then God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your children after you, so that you may... Uh, Christians always run to obey the commandments. That's not what the text says. So that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. That's verse 6. That's generally before verse 8. Yes? Verse verse uh, 14. Um, wait. Deuteronomy 30. Um, Okay. New Bible. The pages are all stuck together. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse um, 15. Look, I have set before you today life and prosperity on the one hand, death and disaster on the other. What am I commanding you today? What, or rather, what I am commanding you today is to... Well, no. Love the Lord your God. Um, where did it go? To walk in His ways and to obey. My text has a comma after the word God. Hebrew doesn't have commas. All right? Uh, precisely. But, but I think this is the right punctuation here. To love the Lord your God, the effect of loving the Lord your God is uh, then defined later as to walk in his ways and to obey his commandments, his statutes, and his ordinances. Where does it all begin? Does it all start with obedience and that is love of God, or does it start with love of God that issues in obedience? See, Deuteronomy is the not, not the second giving of the law. It is the account of how Israel, why Israel got the law and what its effect of them, on them was. The effect of the law is death. So the only option for Israel is to learn, the love, learn, learn to love the Lord your God. That means reflecting on his ways. Not just on his commandments, but on his ways. Israel has reflected on his commandments, but not on his ways. Um, so this is Abraham, folks. Abraham's faith must be our faith. Abraham is righteous not because he's obedient. There are at least five things he does that are, that are violations of what will later be prohibited in the law or commanded in the law. He marries the wrong woman because it's against the law of Moses. Let me make it stronger. It's against the law of God to marry your, your, your half-sister. Well, yeah. On either side. 
not just of your father, but of your mother. See, she's she's his mother's daughter, but she's not her his father's daughter. Are you with me here? The uh, so so Abraham marries the wrong woman. He will not do justice in the family when Hagar exalts herself against Sarah. What does Abraham do? She she comes to him and she says. The language is it sounds a little bit um, confusing to us. The, the wrong done to me is upon you. It's all your fault. This is what it sounds like. Well, <laughs> that wasn't all his fault. Yes, but what does it mean? Why is she coming to him? As the head of the family, it's his job to preserve justice in the family, and he abdicates it. He will not do justice in the family. Are you with me? He lies habitually. In Genesis 21, what is this that has been, or Genesis 20, what is this that that I have done to you that you have done this to me, Abimelech says. And Abraham said, well, she is the, my, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, she's the daughter of my father, but not of my mother. That's it. Got it wrong. Got it backwards. But that's prohibited under the law of Moses. Uh, and when the Lord caused me to wander from my father's house, uh, I said to her, this is the kindness you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say, you are my sister. Um, so it's a half-truth, but, but a half-truth told us the whole truth is a whole lie. And folks, see, this is chapter 20 of Genesis. Yes? Chapter 18 is the year before Isaac is to be born. Okay? Yes? So far? And the promise, next year I will come and then Sarah will have a child. Remember this? So 20 is is within that last year. This This is 24 years they've been in Canaan. 24 years since he wandered from his father's house, they've been telling this lie for 24 years. There are only two occasions that are recorded where he's discovered. I think it's because it's the only two times that the the lie didn't work. You don't keep telling the same lie if it keeps failing. So Abraham is a habitual liar, and he's right with God? Certainly not by works. Although rabbis and some Christian scholars say Abraham had the whole law of God and kept it. Not according to my reading. Am am I making sense to you? All right. So um, what are we to make of this then? Verse um, uh, 3, what then then does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. But righteousness is not now obedience. It can't be, because God would be affirming a falsehood. His his righteousness, I'm sorry, his faith is taken in place of obedience, or that's the way we usually read it. Let Let me paraphrase it slightly. His faith is regarded as, or defined as, righteousness. Faith is not, rather, righteousness is not at its heart right behavior. Righteousness at its heart is a right relationship with God. 
Let me show you this idea. It's, it's in an odd place. Isaiah 46. Some things I remember. Why can't I find that other one? In Isaiah 46, verses 12 and 13. And I want you to, once you get there, don't read it, just look at me. Let me play with your mind. I like to play with people's minds. <laughs> um, up to this point, he's been, he's been taunting Israel and Babylon over their idolatry. And in verse 12, he says, listen, now you're, you're reading, don't read. I want you to listen. I want, to, I want this to fall with full force on you. Listen to me, you stubborn people, you who, are di- who distance yourselves from doing what is right. I am bringing my, my righteousness near. It is not far off. What's coming for these people? Idolatrous, people who are stubborn-hearted, far from righteousness, what's coming? Yeah, but what, what will God righteously do to a people who are stubborn-hearted, far off from righteousness and idolatrous? Change Well, it's not the way most Christians think. It's going to judge them. It's going to condemn them. But you're right, Terry. That's exactly where this is headed. So verse 13 goes on. Behold, and, and uh, uh, the, I'm reading the Net Bible this afternoon says, listen to me, you stubborn people, you who, are, who distance yourselves from doing what is right. I am bringing my deliverance near. The Hebrew word is righteousness. But, he's, but this is the right way to read it. I'm bringing my right. How is he acting righteously with an idolatrous, stubborn-hearted, far-off-from-righteous people? How is that dealing righteously? To deliver them. Because God swore to Abraham that he would bring his people back. And if he doesn't keep his promise, he's not righteous. So God is dealing in right relationship with Israel who, who, are, who have no um, um, virtue in their life that would, that would solicit such a thing, except that God has bound himself in relationship to Abraham and his seed, and his seed he drove into, into Babylonian captivity with the promise that he would re- return them from Babylonian captivity. And that's what Isaiah 48 is about. Righteousness is not always about doing good things, keeping the law, keeping the commandments of God. Um just had a long conversation with a student who lives in Atlanta about this very thing. She's, te- she's writing a study guide for James, and she's trying to work out a lot of things. We had, to, we had to kind of sort through a lot of forest to get to some answers on that. But James is not really focusing on obedience at all. Obedience is an effect of what James is looking for. Uh, so back to Romans 4. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to write him for righteousness. To him who works, the re- reward is not accounted according to grace, but according to debt. So when you, get, when you got a paycheck, you did not go to the boss and kneel down at his desk and bow your head and eyes before him and say, Oh, boss, thank you for your wonderful gift to me and my paycheck this week. Did you? If it wasn't there, you wanted to know why. You want somebody to deal with it right now. Yes? Because you were owed that. So, but, but 
um, to him who works, the reward is not considered according to grace, but according to debt. But to him who does not work, what does work mean in verse 4? In the context of Romans, what does work mean in verse 4? Keeping the law. So what does not working mean? Not keeping the law. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith, the, the word the, do you have is counted as righteousness? What do you have? Yeah. This is called an equative verb. God defines your faith as righteousness. Okay? Your faith is right relationship with God. Uh, turn to Philippians one twenty nine before the hour uh, ends completely. Um, uh, we were talking about this before we started this morning, this afternoon. But Philippians uh, uh, one, uh, I'm in the right. Oh, Philippians one. I'm in Philippians two. It's amazing uh, because to you something has been given. What has been given? Yeah. And it's not just faith. It's the act of faith. It's the act. We, we would perhaps translate this very literally as believing. Not only suffering for his sake, but also believing in his name. Or maybe I got it out of order. To you it has been given for the sake of Christ, not only believing in him, but also suffering for his sake. So, Faith is a gift from God, so I don't even crank faith up. It comes from God. It's a gift from God. And that word forgive there is a word that, that comes from the Greek word for grace, charis. So it's God's gracious gift to us. Does this make sense? Faith is not my work. If it is, then salvation is by works. Faith is a gift of God. Back to Romans 4. So to him, verse 5, to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, justifies the... What kind of people? Ungodly. God justifies ungodly people. A judge in town who would do that, we'd be after his scalp. This Chickasaw country, so... Uh, uh, But God justifies the ungodly. The only way you can be right in God's eyes is if you're an ungodly believer. I am not more godly now than I was 50 years ago or 60 or 70 years ago. Um, In myself, this is all the work of whatever there is of godliness in me is the work of God. Nothing is mine. If, If the Spirit were to depart from me, as you know, you know what the scripture says the, the latter end of that man would be worse than the, than the four first it would be far worse off just verse 6 just as David speaks now of the righteousness of the blessedness of the one to whom God accounts righteousness without works blessed are they whose sins whose lawless acts are forgiven whose sins are covered Blessed is the one to whom the Lord will not account sin. 
He doesn't record sin against us. This is David, Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is, a, is more or less a penitential psalm. Um, let me turn there right quick. It definitely could not be by David's works. It can't David, be by... David was a murderer and a liar. Well, and an alterer and all that. It depends on... on see, and then it, 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 de- it depends on the context because if it were in a certain context, we could say, oh yeah, it is by his works. But not in this context. So chapter 32 of Psalms. Um, it's a short psalm. Uh, it's 11 verses. How blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven, whose sin is pardoned. How blessed is the one whose wrongdoing the Lord does not punish. When I refused to confess my sin, you see, this is why you're right, but if I put it in a different setting, it might be different. I might read it different. When I refused to confess my sin, my whole body wasted away. While I groaned in pain all day long, for day and night you tormented me. You tried to destroy me in the intense heat of summer. Then I confessed my sin. I no longer covered up my wrongdoing. I said, I will confess my rebellious acts to the Lord, and then you forgave my sins. For this reason, every one of your faithful followers should pray to you while there is a window of opportunity. Certainly, when the surging water rises, it will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You protect me from distress and so on. We could go on with that. But David talks about the blessedness of the one to whom the Lord, for whom the Lord keeps no record of sin. Does God not know that you have sinned in the past? He keeps no record of it? No, of course he knows it. But he's not using it against you anymore. And that's Psalm 32. We'll pick it up here next week at this point, Lord willing, and... Uh, Uh, Go on with uh, verse 9. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, this is almost too good to be true. It's almost too good for me to think that the sin that I have committed has been so dealt with by the work of Jesus that you may treat me now as one who, on my record, is only the righteousness of Jesus, nothing else. It's almost too good to be true. And if I didn't see it in your word, I would feel arrogant to make this affirmation. And in the arrogance of faith, I do make the affirmation. We must be bold and arrogant enough to trust what you have said and done through Jesus that we can affirm these things in the, in the, in the very face of those who would condemn us. So, Father, give us this confidence of faith that we may live assured that all sin past present and future has been addressed you have solved the problem for us you have given us faith we're living by faith now teach us more about what living by faith looks like but more than that teach us that our only ground of hope is jesus and in him as our only ground of hope we have all hope because in him is all hope. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.